Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Joshua Hughes for a really uplifting discussion that takes us to the rainforests of Costa Rica. It's a location that just sounds like paradise, but it hasn't always been that way. And with much of the primary rainforest cleared for intensive agriculture over the decades, this is a conversation that's as much about restoring the population, community and livelihoods as it is about restoring nature. And what an incredible place to be working with nature. Take 20 foot of rainfall per year and put it to good use, and instead of devastating erosion, you have the most extraordinarily fast growth and abundance. This is a collaborative agroforestry project with several farms that are building community and self-sufficiency alongside the ongoing development of supply chains for a range of value-added products. A recycler and activist from Oregon, Joshua arrived in Costa Rica almost two decades ago and was at a real low, but he's since become possessed by the power and success of nature that he's experienced. The complication now is not growing the food or the forest, but striving forward to evolve business to models that can be supportive of the people and planet. Every step of the way, Joshua has opened up to working with a wide range of people and he continues to do so. His email address is in the description and he welcomes you to get in touch, especially if you're regenerating in the tropics. You can also support this work in Costa Rica through their retail brand, Rewild Organics. Take a look through the link in the description. New episodes of this podcast are added every other Tuesday and you can find them on YouTube and your favourite podcasting platforms. So don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. Right. Let's get stuck in. Hi, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you being here. And you're working in Costa Rica, developing agroforestry, uh, regenerating the, the rainforest, developing a source of beautiful regenerative products for consumers to eat. So very exciting work that you're doing. And I thought we'd start a little bit differently today by asking, before we hear about yourself, and an introduction to you as a person. I'd love it if you could share the background, the story of the land itself prior to your arrival. So this sort of the rainforests as you entered them. Well, I'm entered into an area of Costa Rica. Uh, I'm from Oregon, but I moved to Costa Rica and chose this area in the Pacific Slopes called, it's a region called Puriscal. And I'm in a little town or a little village called Lanas on the Rio Tulin. And our area was heavily deforested in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And by the time there's even the earliest of satellite maps of the area, it's pretty much wiped out. And just what was where I'm at was primary rainforest or cloud forest uh, 70 years ago is and has been mostly cattle fields, kind of as far as the eye could see on land, the ice steep. So it's there's a couple of national parks now and it's kind of changing. It's getting much better. Um, but as you go back on Google Earth, it's been a pretty sad story since the 60s of, of eliminating or of what people may call making it useful, actually, uh, to expand and get people out of the cities years ago. They did programs where they gave land away. It was virgin forest. And if they made it useful, they could have it. So it was pretty much all cut and uh, used as agricultural land for a couple different things. For In the beginning, it was probably mostly food, but it turned into tobacco and then cattle once the land had eroded bad enough and enough people had kind of left the region because it wasn't <clears throat> thriving anymore. Um, by the time I got there, the population was pretty sparse. A lot of the young people had left and it was just mostly cattle on these on these steep hills. So there's now there's two national parks within a, a couple of kilometers of us and we've been working with our neighbors and the ministries of agriculture and the co-ops and national parks to connect those. And it's the story's getting better all the time. And now there's trees kind of as far as you can see out of front door where it really was just cattle as far as you can see even 17, 18 years ago. So um, 20 feet of rain a year can be put to good use or it can erode everything and uh, and make it a mess. So the more trees we got in the ground, the more it's uh, it's responded very well. And there's a lot of birds now, a lot of big cats. So. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like such a contrast. When you say this term, cloud forest, it sounds heavenly, like paradise, just moist and verdant and waterfalls. Uh, and then the thought of that being sort of, okay, get rid of the trees, 
it's cattle and and it's kind of not just that it's got rid of the ecosystem, but it's pushed the people away. It sounds very devastating and a very, very big problem for, for, for someone to get involved with. And the reason that I started with that as a question prior to hearing about yourself, I think it's really interesting for people to acknowledge, okay, this is a, a huge problem. What you're describing is very large scale. Uh, it's, it's affecting all walks of life. It's affecting the ecosystem and the people that live there. So who takes on the challenge of, of making this better, of putting this right? Is that going to be a government? Is that going to be uh, scientists? Who, who, who comes along and makes the change? And in this case, the answer is you. So I think what, what makes a great story is to learn your background now in the terms of why Costa Rica, why land restoration, and, and what background do people need? Who, what kind of people can get into this work? Well, you know, there's a couple of questions there that are pretty deep and what, like whose job is it? I, I come from a state, I come from Oregon. Um, I come from a place where as I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I, I felt surrounded by nature. I spent a lot of my time camping in, in the mountains near Crater Lake, Oregon. I don't know if you've ever been to that area, but it's quite amazing. And, area uh, places that I thought of as forests as I got a little older I realized they were they were tree farms because I'd go back and it was clear cut and gone and as I got a little older I started getting some perspective on my state and flying over it more and seeing the patchwork of what I thought was forest really realized was 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 kind of faux forests or it was all it was all it was it was nice along the, the highways. You go back a hundred meters and out, and it would be like clear cut as far as the eye could see, or really patchwork. Um, it took me a lot of years of figuring out what I would do and how I could affect that. But I really was I was motivated heavily by that when I was a person, when I was a teenager, and started seeing these areas get cut down. Not that I don't see the value in uh, and the in timber products and things and natural building materials, um, but I saw the tactics there were not something that was leaving good legacy, leaving good space for uh, better ideas. And definitely, like you said a minute ago, like the population was kind of, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't really, there wasn't really community out there anymore. It seemed to become kind of a monoculture of trees, but also a monoculture of ideas. So where, where I chose to move Costa Rica and why, um, I had, I got pepper sprayed a lot trying to do like forest activism in Oregon. I got pepper sprayed a lot trying to do anti-war actions. Um, I was feeling the, the blunt end of a of what of how bad ideas could be reinforced and protected, um, and I didn't feel like that was something that I, I could teach my kid was like the way to go, just to say no things. So I had to do something that was very much yeses and what how I could make a positive influence and impact on the things I cared most about. And it really I, I keep leaning in on forests. You'll hear that a lot. I I wanted to see what I could do to to connect to forests in a way that could maybe fulfill uh, economic needs, but also really fulfill like the, the paying it forward natural systems and uh, what I what I really am passionate about is rebuilding the commons in a way that you can get back in line with um, the positive feedback loops that come from that. And I think, you know, we, we humans did very well for many years because we were in line with those positive feedback loops from nature. And we seemed very smart as we used those up quickly because we got to like make economic advantage. But once those systems were gone, we're really feeling the pinch of what it means not to have topsoil recuperate with its forests. And, and uh, you know, the, the route we've taken with food and stuff now is very much a, a deep, what smarter people than me have called progress traps. So I, I, uh, I wanted to see what was possible. I come from a recycling background. I grew up in a wrecking yard. Um, so I, I didn't come from this as a farmer. I came from this as an activist who wanted to see what was possible. And my talents were in, in my life and my, my set of... Uh, Dance was mostly around taking what other people considered garbage and figuring out uh, pretty young that most of it was still very, very useful, had a lot of life in it. And uh, I became an upcycler most of my life, ended up working in papers and plastics and, and trying to stop things from getting to the garbage. And when I, when I decided to make this shift and I wanted to be a, a part of um, repairing forests, I also wanted to be a part of, uh, I, got, I got involved with some CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture projects in Oregon. And I was really inspired by the impact that consuming uh, and choosing where to consume your food from, how that could maybe make a big difference in one of the simpler things in our lives, which is food and something we all need. So I, I 
I chose Costa Rica. Um, I wanted to be somewhere where there was an eternal spring. I, I was tired of being cold. I also wanted to be somewhere where a government was putting its money where its mouth is. And Costa Rica made a lot of progressive pledges to do things with climate change and to do things with biodiversity. And, um, and going there, I also realized that it wasn't all just a, the the parts you'd see on the brochures, but Costa Rica is deep in duality. It's it's the country that has some of the best biodiversity per meter in the world. Or you know, it's, it's amazing. They protect a lot of the land there. But at the same time, we use the most chemicals per hectare of any country in the world for agriculture. And it's not really us for our local needs there, but it's, it's, it's so the bigger fruit companies and stuff and can consume from there. Uh, so I, I wanted to be on the front line somewhere where it mattered. I chose Costa Rica because there seemed to be a good collaboration, collaboration happening. And I appreciate the, the government's effort and the local and the, the local perspective, um, at least in, in the campo in the countryside where I live down there is, uh, very much like figure out how to do things, do it, try things, do it well, and people mostly stay out of your way. So we've we've had a chance down here in Costa Rica to experiment, to let nature kind of take over. Um, and there was a lot of collaboration from neighbors. So we, we chose a spot where people are pretty good at this already and that wanted some help and um, maybe something that I could bring to the table, which was energy and perspective and and, and finances from the way I chose to do this, which was a very collaborative effort from hundreds of people um, working together in small, small bits. And so, yeah, we, I chose Costa Rica for many reasons, but mostly because I wanted a place where I could collaborate with my government and they're pretty good down here. So. That's really interesting. Very, yeah. very uh, interesting aspect to it. And there's a couple of things there that I think are wonderful trends that people should hook into. The idea that you were an activist, you were very eager to find something to get your teeth into, to make a difference, to see that, you know, there are issues in the world, things aren't done particularly well. How, how can I channel that energy? And you came to the conclusion or your journey sort of took you on steps to get involved in CSA, uh, Community Supported Agriculture. So this idea that you you moved on your journey to getting your hands in the soil, I think that's a beautiful trend and a, a wonderful thing for, for people to acknowledge the significance of that, What whatever way you do that, that, that connection between making positive change in the world and getting involved with growing are uh, two things that really can go side by side, a fantastic way to, to sort of use your energy. And the other thing that you said many, many times within that is collaboration. The government is collaborative and the community are collaborative. And that's a theme that I'd love to discuss further with you, because I think that's another very, very important trend within the sort of regenerative space and moving things forward for, for the future of this sort of tying people, planet, profit, making things more harmonious in the way we go about them. Um, so fantastic. Thank you so much for, for introducing um, everything, your background. And what I'd like to learn more now, we, we know you're in Costa Rica, you are restoring and working upon these the rainforest that has previously been pretty degraded, pretty sort of stripped back of, of its forest, its canopy and um, left to the cattle to graze. Could you now take us on a journey if we arrived with you today? Could you explain what we would see? Take, take us around your farm and where you've moved it to. I didn't know what to do at first except start planting trees and my neighbors knew what to do there. I had a, there's a local family where I moved that there was a couple of very passionate young people that had replanted most of our most sensitive areas around us, the waterways, and had spent their lives learning and hoping that what they remembered from their childhood could be there again, that the diversity of birds and the, the fruits and production of what the forest reduced back and forth with them between the wildlife and the, the amazing fruits they got to consume. And so I was fortunate enough to found a little area where um, there were some passionate folks about it. And there's still a few people left. Um, urbanization really took hold where I was. And most young people would leave the second they'd even get into high school. They'd kind of have to leave to find better education. So, um, yeah, so right now, what, what would you see if you came to my area? You'd see results of about 20 years of neighborhood engagement, um, which, and our and our little farm, seven, last 17, 18 years, I've got to... Um, kind of take deep, invest, put deep investment into a place that I didn't have a lot of expectation from at first. So 
I wanted, I came at this as a recycler. I'm a recycler that a wrecking yard guy that, that came to farming or whatever, or came into uh, homesteading out on the, the edge of what used to be farmland. Um, so when I got there, I just started planting trees and I listened to my neighbors and we planted the diverse trees that they wanted, that they had success with, that could create both long-term uh, habitat for the wildlife, the forest itself, and creating forest habitat is important where I'm at because it's so different than a rainforest. It's like a savanna now. So they, they taught me trees to plant and we went out and some of those trees are uh, amazingly useful. Now we're building furniture out of things I planted 17 years ago. So what you'd feel now is a young forest that's got it, that was really tended to mostly for birds, fruit, and local building and useful materials in any area that wasn't hypersensitive and really steep. In any, any area that was really sensitive and steep, we kind of let go to nature and just put in some pioneer species that did things like bring in birds and mammals that would that would help plant real diversity. Um, the unexpected, beautiful biodiversity that you can get in Costa Rica that when you when you can create space for birds uh, was really one of my earlier goals. I wanted a longer lever, less work in every every square foot, you know. So I, I really did mimic my neighbors and what they had done. Um, and what you'd feel now is there's fruit dripping off trees. There's gr edible greens all around the houses and homes in our village. Um, there's still patchworks of neighbors who are still doing intensive cattle farming, but that gives you a very good, uh, you know, you get a little time lapse of what we, what we're doing on three different farms right now and what where neighbors, some of our neighbors are still doing. Um, but what you'd feel is it's kind of deeply green year round now. And you can feel, see that on Google earth too. I'd be happy to share coordinates here and, and guide people to our area and maybe go back in time a bit on the satellites and, and see what it was like 30 years ago and how different it is now. There's very deep green veins connecting national parks. And um, so from the hills around me, it's even kind of hard to see anymore. You're kind of in the forest. When I got there, you could have a big broad view of the Valley. Now you see 30 feet and there's a wall of trees and, and uh, you hear the birds and you hear the bugs and the diversity of things like butterflies and diversity of things like hummingbirds um, is, is kind of amazing. I st I've been there 17 years and still see birds that I've never seen before every week. So, um, so that first thing you'd feel, you'd also feel a space that I've been building with my neighbors um, kind of as a community center. It's called Verde Energia Pacifica. It's our kind of our, our main lodge area where we've been, bringing bringing friends experts um neighbors together and and kind of call it our impact center um, we've had about four thousand people from around the world come in the last 17 years and help with everything from preparing food to planting trees to having yoga retreats so we can help finance it again the next year or whatever so um you'd feel a kind of a rustic space that i've built with my family to make sure that we're all comfortable enough while we do this work um, or while we choose to live there and and engage with this. Um, we have fairly intensive now agroforestry projects uh, included in all of this where we're doing high production. I have a farm called the Namorado Cacao Collective where we put out about 70,000 pounds of turmeric this season. So very much like real work, hauling it out on our shoulders through these jungle paths. And um, any, any of the areas in our space that are a little flatter, less sensitive, we, we've left in, you know, to food production or brought food production back. Um, uh, I have a lofty forestry goals, but I also don't want to replace my neighbor's uh, caloric, like the acreage that makes calories with uh, with just forests. So any areas that we can, we we left to figure out how we can have food production and or high value superfood production for international markets. So you feel a good mix of all these experiments kind of shuffled together um, and a neighborhood that's gotten the time and investment into it. Uh, to take deep breaths, stop using chemicals, uh, and and maybe move forward in an organic way together. Um, it's something that we keep we have to keep up and every year figure out how to do it again, how to finance it, how to plant more trees. But there is a lot more participation. The world seems to care more and more about these things. And the word regenerative, I don't even remember it being popular 17 years ago when we started regenerating this area. But I'm glad that people are catching up there. The big organizations have made pledges of the world, whether or not they fall through or want to do it in the best way, uh, I think you'd really feel a community forestry. That's what, that's what we're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds absolutely amazing. The way that you've integrated so many aspects and, and made it your home and your community. 
I, I, I'm, I, there's so many things that we could discuss here. One very quick one that I'd like to touch on. You might have lots to say on this, but you know, let's let's kind of touch on this quickly. The idea of you you kind of restoring a rainforest prior to the trees being there. I assume if the forest is gone, that impacts the rain aspect of Ooh, that. Yeah. So have you know have you noticed the difference? And th- th- does that come back fairly quickly? Those water cycles. So. Yes and no. I mean, we're we're all kind of at the mercy now or of the ocean temperature, and I'm only about 10 miles inland from the ocean, but Costa Rica is famous for its microclimates. Um, and yeah, in the beginning, when I first got there, the, the rain levels may have sounded traditionally the same because like, hey, you get 20 feet of rain, it's 20 feet, but it would all come in like a few weeks or it all come in a few hours each day. So you'd have tragic uh, erosion. And yeah, in in no time, we stopped having erosion issues. In no time, we start having creeks flow year-round and springs pop back up from the work being done around around the watershed. Um, but yeah, our valley will still be green when, or even even farm farm will still be green when neighbors are turning kind of brown because they just have grasses. So you can feel that very immediately. I, I thought it would take a lifetime to feel those impacts, but in 10 years, what start, started to feel like a little forest. And some of the tree I plant trees 10 years or 15 years ago that were, you know, this tall um, and they're, you know, foot tall. Now they're 80 feet tall and, and big enough to hug almost, you know. So it's if you can get trees in the ground and and not cause more problems by accident. That, that's always something to think about, too. Uh, you know, yeah, you can really feel the impact and the the rains we're experiencing these days. Uh, we're having longer dry seasons. We're really feeling drought in Central America. but then all the rain will still come, it just comes in one day uh, and you have massive erosion and, and washouts. So that's a problem in Costa Rica. It's a problem in most of, most of uh, Central America, big landslides and stuff. So you can feel that, that impact rather quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. It's, it, it sounds amazing. The, just the idea of over those 17 years taking trees up to 80 feet, that sounds such quick growth. Oh, such quick growth. And it, it's, it's kept me excited about this. My personality type needed to see something happen kind of quick. I was trying to affect big geopolitical, big world issues. And, um, you know, you can move into the forest and watch trees grow and that could be kind of slow motion. But in the tropics, it's, it's pretty much like that movie Jumanji. You can see things grow in front of you. Uh, each, each tree branch, when it's raining on a, on a hard rain day, will grow like two inches. Some trees grow two inches every direction in one day. Same with grasses. So you really do get to feel how fast life works here or in the tropics. And it gave me a ton of faith in nature's ability to be restored. Um, it's not like that all over the world. You're going to have much different you know, experiences in different places. But where I chose to be gave helped me develop like a deep hope, I guess, in what was possible in nature. Because it did come back pretty fast. And, and, and by the way, in, in the short term, frogs... Um, bugs, birds, like they were back in no time, just having any space to be three-dimensional space rather than just cattle lands that were just a monoculture of grass. So like now, just to have any biodiversity, they brought back so many birds, bugs, and bees. That's That's been a pretty quick uh, measure to see what's going on. And here, you can hear it, what's going on. Uh, it's so loud all the time, even in the middle of the night. Uh, and then community, having the young people stay in the community to work for this and work with us. Um, that's something else that I would say I'm more proud of because I think the technical part of building forests is pretty, actually pretty simple, simple, not easy. Um, having solid community that won't repeat the same mistakes because they're they're left out when we just maybe have abstractions like carbon as our monitor, as our only you know, gauge of success maybe or something, or just tree counts um, or even animal counts. Like, I, you know, I'm putting humans in this and, and, you know, that's something I can feel most maybe in Lanus is that there's young people there. They're moving back. They're building homes there, while communities just a 15 minutes away aren't having that same experience. So that that's very noticeable. And the the, the you know not bottom up, but the but the normal people out approach um, to forestry uh, is including people and their families in a different way, rather than just counting on big governments or big universities to buy land up and create. What uh, my partner Amanda has recently read the called uh, Fortress conservation conservationists and we're trying to build fortresses where people can't be engaged building forests that are that are engageable both on the food level the and the like keeping communities living there um 
that's that's where I think we're going to have sustainable long-term regenerative action where we're engaged with the force. We are forest creatures for many hundreds of thousands of years. And we're not, I'm not building the force to keep people out and we're not making a program that only includes a few measures. Like the, the measures that I'm like enjoying the most is my neighbors having children again and staying in their community. They choose to stay in. So. Yeah, that, that definitely seems to be an enormous part of the, the vision and the success of what you're doing. And sort of on that note you can include that in this list but I think it would be great if you could offer a sense of if you were to start over mm. with everything that you've learned mm -hmm. so all of the understanding but the sites back at square one what would be sort of right there at the top of the list the first three steps that you would put into action I'm grateful that I was naive about some of the the steps that were like more scientific about the forest or whatever because I I came to, a, I moved from a, to a different country. I moved to a different culture. I moved to a new language, um, being an American, North American and coming to Central America. Um, I think I would do some of the steps exactly the same, which was integrate with my community and show them that I was serious and I'm there with them, um, that I'm not just an absentee. There were absentee cattle owners before. I wouldn't want to be an absentee uh, forestry, uh, agroforestry owner. So like that, that step, I think I put first and I'd still put that first is dive in with the community that's there. Um, what would I do different? Uh, man, I mean, I did experiments with my neighbors for so many years and I've tried, I tried hundreds of things. I think I would do that again. <laughs> I would like to, I would like to be, uh, you know, like, like see what would work, but if I could do it different, um, or I would I mean, I started this in 2006. There wasn't a lot of energy around regenerative then. People had started talking about sustainability. So, I mean, I, I had sort of a sublime, somebody called this, I think Chris Hedges calls it sublime madness. <laughs> I was I was, I was, was very much uh, seeing the world I wanted to see and seeing it like very clear in front of me. So um, the steps I took, I th I'd take them again. I would experiment a lot. Um, the world's changing. The climate's changing. Communities don't know what to do. So coming in with like an idea of what I, what I thought I know will work. I, I, I never, I didn't do that. And I, I wouldn't do that again. I'd, I'd show up with a open heart for experimenting. Um, I would, what, what else would I put in the top of that list? Mm. And I chose to be in a place that didn't have a lot of access, like no internet. Uh, if I could start over, I, I would say I might spend a little more energy trying to get communications into our village and valley earlier, but I think I did try <laughs> just 15 years before it showed up or 16. Um, and I would say maybe select a place where, you know, the internet worked, but I, then I don't know, then I wouldn't be where I'm at. And I, I like these, I wanted to be in an area that people had kind of forgotten about. Uh, people call the areas we're in, I, I think kind of like sacrifice zones. So I chose to be in an area that people had like sacrificed to the, industry and kind of walk away from um it made it harder it's you know it's harder to get transport out there it's harder to have telephone calls but i think i'd repeat that too so as i, as I say it i wanted to be on the edge and out of, like in the, the space that other people didn't want to be i didn't want to be around tourism in a traditional way um you know i guess in the beginning i would have i would have under if i understood what i know now um a lot more people want to participate in these things than I anticipate. So creating a good space with lots of space for teachers and students to come while not depending on that as like a business maybe, but just being more prepared for what was coming and has happened again post COVID. Um, I think we should all be open to sharing what we have and what we're learning um, as quick as possible and making this an open source experiment. So I, uh, I maybe would have searched a little hard to find some more experiments like ours and learn from the mistakes. Um, there's not really a roadmap on how to regenerate the world that's very clear. And it's so different from neighborhood to neighborhood or from culture to culture, what needs to be done, that it'd be hard to come at this with a game plan. Uh, if I was in the food industry, I would have made different decisions. But with that perspective now, um, you know, stepping into regenerative herbs and growing like value-added crops and stuff, I knew that was coming one day. I also knew that uh, you don't rush into regenerate a piece of land that's been destroyed and then produce in just a couple of seasons it's not realistic where i'm at we had to grow soil for years so um i would have probably hired some some people that knew how to grow soil faster uh, <laughs> and I, I have all that line now i have some amazing technicians there but but uh maybe that's something i you know we need to become top soil farmers before we can become food farmers so 
I would have thought about that a little differently. Yeah, fantastic point. And with that in mind, you didn't come at this from being a farmer, which a lot of people sort of they're transitioning land from conventional methods to regenerative methods. A lot of that's going on around the, the globe um, as we're sort of trying to find our, our ways forward. You didn't have that prior background of this is how um, sort of you've been educated one way and you're trying to pull yourself in a new direction. Do you think that made it easier to, to sort of learn these approaches? You didn't have too much unlearning to do. Or do you think that made it more of a stumbling block? I think it made it easier if I had like if I had a farm and I just had to start producing because I had an epiphany and wanted to be organic or something. Uh, I think there'd be a thousand ways to fail that could like, especially in the farming model that I, where I come from, the U.S. <clears throat> the average age of farmers, I think, 60, 60 years old right now. They're probably in debt too. Um, and if they look towards like organic farming as a way of going, I think 85% of organic farms are supported by other income that, that keeps them afloat. They're welders, they're lawyers, they're some, something else. And they, they do farming basically as a hobby. So to ask someone to come, uh, even even big producers, it's not a hobby, but it's heavily subsidized uh, by other things. And that's, so to expect someone that's maybe got a something that's working to go and change it. Um, and, and try and pioneer this shift, I don't envy them at all. I'm, I see why it's taking time. Uh, I see why those experiments aren't being done at scale. Um, and then kind of the bigger business version of organic that's coming along, like the, the maybe I'll say the Walmart, like top-down organic approach um, that's been discouraging for small farmers. They don't have much more for changing. Um, and there's a huge risk there. So I I don't envy people at all that are growing like tomatoes today and want to switch it over to regenerative ag. Now, I, I do envy their knowledge and depth of knowledge on how to produce food. And uh, I've got some amazing people on my team that are good at that now. Um, but yeah, I, I had the patience to let forests grow and grow soil. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people could do that in the current food production game. So I'm a recycler. I, I came out and saw an area that needed upcycling, basically. And I had the time, patience, and thought about it that way. Um, and forests are my bigger and lo like longer-term goal is to have forests, healthy forests. So um, coming at it as a forestry person that saw how the edges and the, the very useful spaces that were easily accessible could be turned into food production. Um, you know, like I said a minute ago, we, we had a monoculture of grass before because it was all cattle. And that's also a monoc that was also very much a few families that got to do all the cattle. It wasn't like a broad thing happening. So my whole region has kind of not been in food production for a long time. So forestry was a little lower hanging fruit. There's a lot of very sensitive areas around me. And as we did that, we got to see and experience the the feedback loops and the that came out of that. And I got to shift my ideas about food production too. So I'm I, I wish I would have known more, but I also feeling good about the there's a lot of people not in food it sounds like we're, we're an aging farming population in this world so we need more people to come at food production that have no idea or aren't from that historically in their families so um i hope maybe to inspire some people that are sitting in an office somewhere wishing they could do this to like take these steps um like i did and and, and there are people that can help make sure that you don't make big missteps but but I had time. I knew I was in this for the long haul. And I have a very politically driven, too. I'm very politically driven. So a lot of what I'm doing is a lot bigger than me and my farm and always will be. So, you know, I was willing to take risks that a small farmer that's barely getting by probably couldn't have taken. So... Mm -hmm. I think you're doing a wonderful job of inspiring um, with what you're saying here. It offers that generation, that younger generation, a different vision of farming. It's not vast expanses of fields sat in a tractor all day. It's, it's kind of being around life, a rainforest, this absolute um, beautiful, beautiful location. So with that in mind, agroforestry, regardless of its location, whether you're in a rainforest or you're in a more arid climate, agroforestry is an interesting one for food production. And it's something that is, uh, it makes so much sense if you've got that time and that patience to, to nurture a new forest then what a beautiful way to, to go about producing food. But so many of the steps that you've taken and the trees that you've planted 
are there for the ecosystem, are there for the purpose of growing the forest. You have then also developed aspects of this that are for commercial product. And I'm interested to hear more about how did you decide what what crops should grow commercially and how they'd fit into the system? Yeah, so agroforestry, um, my area again, it gets so much rain and it's like eternally spring. So it became, it was, it was very much about learning how to do like food, food forests right around my space and to get into a groove where why not grow all the food you need that you can easily, like a low hanging fruit again, but stuff that would work very hands off. Um, I, again, coming at this from a recycler's perspective, I really was thinking about energy in, energy out. Was it, is, any, is it really worth it? A lot of recycling is done isn't really worth it. It's just done to make us feel good about single use activity. Um, and, and then, you know, a lot of the things we consume and eat, there's like more calories in the box and package around your cereal than there are calories inside that going that you could eat in your, going to your body. So like, I really think about efficiency as calories in and calories out and the more I got into agroforestry, the more I saw like I could tend to a tree for one year or one season and things like pehivaye, um, it's a peach palm, something we eat in Costa Rica. It gives you, you can get a half a million calories a year off each tree. Uh, and it just takes a season or two of a little bit of love. And you have 20 years, 10, 15 years of production on this little sepa of trees, um, huge amounts of fat and protein. So there was, there was really deep, valuable lessons coming at me from like what agroforestry could be, not even in a big high production replace the farming systems of the world but um make it so that my my house and my village didn't have to worry about about food um for at least big chunks of the year um the bigger challenge in our area may not be like the growing of the food the things that come out of agroforestry but it's actually processing preservation and packaging of those things so that you can use them around that's that, that that's actually one of the bigger missing links in um, in all of this is the processing part of all of it, but put that aside a little bit. But so ag- agroforestry became an obvious solution for us to feed ourselves um, and to not be constantly have it figured out again every year. I mean, we have jackfruit trees all around our properties now that feed our whole village if they want to eat it. Each, each fruit can be 55 pounds, you know, 30 kilos, uh, up to 30 kilos of fruit. So it's, it's, uh, it's highly productive when done even a little right. Um, uh, now to at scale and and what we chose to do to start uh, getting things to market we 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 realized early on in our little farm that one of the missing links was that ability to process value add package get things out to the world um certain things that grow really well in our area like turmeric and ginger and um aren't you know aren't in high demand in our little region and everybody can grow it pretty easily so um, what do you do you know with the stuff that's that's very hardy and grows great in our, in our climates and works well in our polyculture systems and our agroforestry systems. So we chose to, we chose that we leaned in on probably 300 different varieties of plants over the last 17 years to see what would work. And there's several dozen that work really, really well with really low inputs. So we've been working on getting those developed for value added markets. Right now we have a brand called, our brand is called Rewild Organics. It's rewildorganics.org.org. And uh, we have a, products that mostly come from turmeric right now um mixes turmeric ginger cacao and other things that grow really well in our region so um one of our farms in amara cacao is kind of becoming a, a gold milk farm actually so as we found the, the value-added goods that the market loves from us we're we're leaning in and growing more and more of those ingredients at our site so um we, we've chosen the, the things we grow because there was some there was demand in our circles from small producers from chocolate manufacturers from vitamin makers and uh, people do extracts and that led us to things like tumor ginger cacao black pepper vanilla um, jackfruit cinnamon and we grow 100 different things at the farm for our own consumption but we're figuring out how and what things are best to commercialize uh, yeah and 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 we we won't use a drop of chemicals so you know with in our model we really it's been deep experiments in what would work what would be uh what would work in these systems and not require petroleum so uh, we do it all by hand <laughs> it, it's uh, what i'm hearing then is is like you are you're not having to do everything perfect you're not trying to intensely get every calorie you possibly can out of that land but you're taking root where patience and the natural ecosystem just it 
it brings abundance and very, very readily a variety, a very rounded kind of diverse diet for the local community. If you lean on that, that, that we were kind of food desert before I got there. It was just like cattle was the only thing being grown there and a few oranges or something. So it's, and so yucca, like the few things that people could grow, but most everybody worked for big, bigger cattle businesses. And so they didn't have time to, to work on their own gardens. Um, so it's been an experiment, not just in what people were used to doing there too. We, we I, like I said, I've had to kind of, the climate's changing and the rain patterns have changed. So we're growing, we're trying everything. We've tried, you know, anything that will grow in the tropics and some things that don't grow in the tropics, we're giving a shot and, you know, it doesn't all work. Um, <laughs> in fact, most of it doesn't, but now, now we've really figured out good tactic for growing soil and, and now it's getting a little, it's getting a little out of hand at times, how much production comes out of healthy soil and you get this much rain. So now it's really refining that and figuring out what market wants and what is the best use of our time. I can grow a whole bunch of squash, but make no money, but I, I want to grow enough squash to feed a community and then a little bit of vanilla placed in the right spot on living vineyards where the, the vineyards they're growing on are nitrogen fixing, um, soil repairing plants themselves. And, and we can get a couple hundred dollars a kilo for something like vanilla. So we're, we're, we're now listening. Black sheep has created a kind of market pathway that we get the call and response. So here's what we have been growing. Here's what we can grow. Here's something we've done. You can have a sample of, and we're finding the companies now and actively searching companies that want to, that want to, that want the higher value stuff that'll allow our farms to really produce. Uh, something you said too earlier about agroforestry, it's not really just all about getting food from it. There's also, I, I had some deep lessons early on. I was you know, locking myself to like a log truck in Oregon before I left, before I before I moved to Costa Rica to, to protect old growth forests. And now I'm, I find the species of trees that are to grow really well in a savanna that they've created out of the what was a rainforest. And those trees don't exist like in the rainforest. So for the first 20 years, as we're bringing back an area, certain trees are going to be the lumber I need for building a house or the lumber I need for making a, a bed that will last generations, hopefully, because it's it's not, you know, just throwaway furniture. Um, so thinking about things like building materials and agroforestry is one of the ways we're stabilizing, getting to invest in longer term, less risk activities, like a tree that grows pretty, pretty um, rain or shine year to year. It's not as sensitive. And over 20, 25 years, you get back a return on this piece of lumber you grew. Um, and, or this, uh, and, it lets us experiment and take a little longer on figuring out how to grow the food as well. So agroforestry is just about having everything be about food. I'm also, I'm also growing stuff that my grandkids are going to build homes out of. Um, and that, that's an important part of agroforestry too. I see, I see trees now that are going to be built into dressers as just kind of a longer term carrot, just another thing in the garden sometimes. Um, and that, that for me is a big transition because I thought, you know, I wasn't going to ever cut a tree down. And now I'm learning how to bring back forest with the right trees and in different ways. Yeah, that that is it's a very um, interesting change of relationship with the trees when you can see the, uh, the 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 management of the forest is so inclined towards regeneration. Mm-hmm. Then it, it offers these extras, and that that dy- it's basically a dynamic that brings complete resilience and self-sustainability because you're not just saying well we're just going to have this aspect of our needs met by the forest it's providing for for so much and I think something I must ask you about because you've said it a couple of times and it it feels like a something that we should know more about is this wonderful soil that you're building and have you got any tips that you've learned along the way of how how to build that soil? Well, it would depend where you're at in the world, but where we're at, I, I, it's not, it's not a place that I want to bring back like, um, grazing animals. So I'm trying to kind of get rid of the grazing animals. And I'm not saying that because I don't like, I don't think cows have a place. They do just not really in the tropics on hills this steep. So I've been, we've been really trying to figure out how to, how to bring back topsoil without all the animal input, or at least the, that kind of, that kind of grazing animal input. So for us, it's been learning what would work as a green manure <clears throat> like what kinds of vines we plant to go kind of beat out the grasses that were that were brought into our area that don't belong there um what kind of species i could plant of trees that would bring us i mentioned this earlier bring in birds or squirrels or something that would help us plant more diverse uh set of weeds weeds that'll come back there that'll help beat out the monoculture that is grass um 
and start getting any kind of protection from direct rain. Where I'm at, when the rain hits the soil directly, it's it. It wasn't that way for millennia. A place, uh, hardly any of Costa Rica's oil ever got hit directly by raindrop. It would hit 50 different leaves before it hit the ground. So um, where I have the tactics are really, if I can start protecting the ground from direct contact with rain and sun uh, as quick as possible with a diverse set of what people may consider weeds, fast growing things that aren't really productive for most people's farms. So um, yeah, the, we grow soil by just mostly protecting the ground from the rain. <laughs> and then uh, getting the right kind of trees in place. There's a lot of nitrogen-fixing trees and a lot of organic, highly productive organic material-producing trees, trees that grow giant leaves in no time, and we go out and prune them. So I do a lot of what they call chopping and dropping. We go out and plant stakes of trees, just three foot, two and a half foot, three foot long, one meter long posts, and they come back to life. And then every six months or every year after that, once they've taken, we go out and take all the branch off, drop them, and, and slowly build back an organic material level that has been lacking there for a long time. Uh, if you want to create like a adobe, you take the clay, it's the clay that's all around us, the sand that's all around us, the grass that's all around us, the cow poop and the rain, and you'd squish it all together and stomp on it over and over and you'd make adobe. Well, that's what the cows have done in our entire region. So getting getting them moved off and letting, it, letting the plants come back and stopping that, that, that compassion. Um, a lot of this just happened pretty naturally then. then and one thing I was able to invest a lot of time and money into that maybe uh, not everybody could do, but uh, my neighbors couldn't have all pulled this off, but we did. We had hundreds of volunteers coming, wanting to do helpful things. And so I had them spraying backpacks full of bacteria, like cow poop teas, uh, and with microorganisms or with uh, different types of fungus, and just helping accelerate the, the forest's microorganism biodiversity. Uh, that's something that that really did help enable all the other things to come back quickly and let soil grow. Um, but mostly it's what we didn't do in areas there. It's like, you see, I stop stomping on it with the wrong kind of idea. And mostly those areas come back on their own. In the areas that we wanted to grow food, it's pretty serious. Nutrients and organic material back in the ground and getting the right kind of bacteria uh, and fungus that will be conducive for whatever you're growing. So put a lot of algae on the ground now and I put a lot of I put a lot of fungus back in the soil but in, even in a healthy tropical jungle there may only be you know 10 centimeters of topsoil anyway where in some spots like where I grew up in Oregon there could be 100 feet of topsoil in areas because glacier action was there for millennia where in the jungle they have there's no winter so we don't have this year by year buildup it's just kind of a pretty quick uh, transition from leaf to soil to leaf uh, so creating a canopy in the jungle is actually where you have your topsoil. The canopy is the topsoil. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it it's 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 very. Um, I'm kind of imagining the speed of all of this. <laughs> it just feels like it makes it that bit more engaging for you as as you go through the journey, watching that canopy grow quickly, seeing the 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 weeds grow quickly, and having all that biomass mm -hmm. that you you know previously would. Ooh, nothing at hard. all growing it's it, it, it yeah it sounds it sounds wonderful and what everything you've said there about growing the soil it it, it correlates well to what other people are doing um keep the soil covered you know follow the follow the toolkit keep the soil covered make sure things are cool get the biostimulants in there if you can get the biomass keep um all that chopping and dropping and it's wonderful just Everything feels accessible. You're making it sound very, very accessible and doable. And the the volunteer aspect of this, I think, is for any project where you're doing things on the land. Often that is, it's the labour that can be the biggest setback or the biggest challenge to get access to if you're trying to do all of this work and it's very. Um, hands-on rather than with big machines. So I think that would be a, a really interesting area to, to look into, to, to discuss more, basically. And there's something about the way that you've gone through this. You haven't come at this as though it's a really sort of profitable business model from the start. You've come at it from uh, community ownership, from community integration and collaboration. And the business itself is, I understand, community-owned. 
and that's that's all kind of working into it yeah and it's growing out of that i the the foundation of it is what you just spoke of and we've the business parts are kind of like where you where we realize we really need to hyper organize area and it needs to be financed and funded and it's not just going to take off as a as a automatically i don't know it's like like we've we've chose we've learned where we need to kind of lean in and do small businesses um as part of all this so yeah it's come out of that really and and like i said i i personally there's 70 owners my project together and different people come at it from different angles and uh, for different reasons. Um, I'm big on unity. I'm not big on uniformity. So I, I, I did this for the reasons I do it. And other people have come along in my life recently. They're much more engaged in just the business part. Um, and that's great. The, t- the timing is timing is there now. We need to think about that. So, but yeah, no, that's what I mentioned earlier. I guess if I was a farmer day one, 17 years ago, I probably would have given up in a year because it would have been so slow or I, I don't know, I would have recognized that those challenges and uh, earlier on and not had time with patience to get there so if I'm trying to sort of weigh up the way that you're doing this there's the community ownership of the land and it's a sort of larger piece of land that you're working on and then you're almost bringing in a, an ecosystem if you like of little businesses where you're putting focus areas but it still has that foundation of um work going on that has come out of this this birth project that you've done as a community do you feel like that's significant to to the 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 model itself that it has those different focuses well i didn't know what i was doing in the beginning other than i needed to regenerate i wanted to regenerate this piece of land and figure out what to do so i did open myself up early on to letting a lot of people bring their ideas to the table so when I had like volunteerism show up in my life, it wasn't because I really wanted to accomplish this bigger or knew how to accomplish a bigger goal. It was really, I was looking for people that wanted to try this with me and experiment with me. So I got to find the people that would help lead this with me. Um, I still, and that's still why I do this. I'm like trying to find the right people to really, I don't, I don't just want volunteers in my life. And uh, frankly, a lot of volunteers or volunteerism around farming tends to be, it's mostly just like kind of an education thing. And we're giving as a farm a lot. Um, it slows down our, our like highly productive farmers to teach this, but I want people to learn this and I want to find the people that want to learn these things. So over the years, I've had thousands of people come and participate. Um, and now hundreds of them are helping lead this with me from all around the world. So I, I'm really appreciative of the, the youth and the energy that goes into sending like the universities that are sending kids our way and, and mostly people that aren't even really relevant. It's not like farm relevant. A lot of like engineering students come to us and people that want to think about the world differently. So I've, uh, I found a lot of successes in that. Uh, I mostly find people that like to recruit beautiful minds that from all over the world that come together at our little spot. Um, but more than anything, we get I get to help people, give people a chance to fall in love with nature because we get to really immerse and live real close to nature. I don't have glass on the windows at my place. I have some screens. Some people don't like bugs, uh, but mostly if people can come to my mat and fall in love with nature, I think we've won um, and it grows out of that. But most of all, everything we do is very much based on not just volunteerism, but like voluntarily wanting to do these things at all. Um, we don't come down here to vacation. My family comes down to Costa Rica and spends months working the butts off and, and they leave typically very rewarded and we're feeling like they exchanged energy with the community we're in, not just came and like left with the, a couple of good Instagram shots or whatever. It's really much more than that. So um, I've gotten a lot out of the volunteerism that, that is out there in the world, but mostly I, uh, I get to find people that, that love this and we get to hang out. We've, I, it's amazing how uh, I think just our little spot with no advertising, we've had about 4,000 people find us somehow in the last 17 years. So oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a huge number. Oh, it is. It is. It's really beautiful uh, how many people want to participate. And I didn't understand that when I started this, how many people would want to play. Um, so it's been very rewarding. And it's helped me build a team. Um, I, I, the initial 10, 15 people that started my farm with me, more than half of them really haven't even been able to participate all that much. So it's been uh, opening up and being a more open type of business and wanting to find and be run, not just run, but be founded by people that show up, not just people who were here 20 years ago. So like now, I even as people come into organization, very open to them leading, not just showing up and like, here's this rigid constitution I wrote 20 years ago, but here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's what we're lacking. People bring that to the table. 
Now we have people that own this together from all over the world. Some people who've never been to the jungle and some people who've never been out of the jungle own this together. My neighbors, our friends in Lanus um, that care to do this, get to vest with us and become owners in it as well. Um, my political drives to do all the, to live the way I live also include like owner, um, like collective co-op type ownership of the businesses people work for and, and with. And um, so if we get to experiment in that world, it's pretty simple, um, you know, simple, not easy to coordinate people. But I, I figure it's the best shot at, at a world where democracy really matters is if there's democracy in the workplace too, not just uh, one a Tuesday every four years. Um, you know, we want to live that dream. We should probably figure out how to do it work too. Yeah, it sounds very refreshing in so many different ways. And you're producing you're producing a lot of food that is being consumed locally by the community and the, the, the surrounding people. And you've also mentioned the work that you're doing with Rewild to, to take some of those products and make them into value-added processed products. You... These products, therefore, they're, they're kind of the dried products, so the, the items that can be stored for long periods of time, they can be held, held up to the distribution and, and go to different countries. So are you selling them far and wide? And have you got um, developments that you're doing to get that, that supply chain to support you as well? Yep, that's what I, I spend a lot of my time on now personally. Um, we're doing things like going to ingredients fairs and, and natural food shows and stuff to get out the value-added goods we've done, whether that be just like turmeric powders, ginger powders, things like that, or th- things like golden milk, making retail-ready products. So we're, we're that's that's kind of our mission now. The farm's producing a lot and it's produced a lot more every season as the soil gets better and better and we refine our tactics. So yeah, my mission now is to make sure that we open up good markets for these things, um, that we find the right partners, the, anybody out there that's producing already currently that needs to make sure they're uh, they're crossing off their, on their own list about doing things that are good for the planet, good for climate change, good for regenerative uh, actions. They want their, their dreams and goals. I'd love that we as a supplier, as a soil growers can step in and, and grow the different product people want. So not only the stuff we're growing now, but the soil we're growing now, I, I want more people to find us. Anybody listening out there that's producing something, needs an ingredient from the tropics, give me a call. Let's let's start growing what you need to. So um, our, little, our little collective now needs market access. And we're also um, looking at expanding into more of the, the, the value-adding side, like getting investing more and more into the things that do like drying and washing and packaging of the goods so we don't have to move them so far. Um, for example, like our neighbors will grow turmeric or ginger. There are five parts out of six are, are water in, in turmeric and we send six trucks out across the country to be dried and they go a couple hundred kilometers and makes one truck of dried turmeric. So bringing some of those things closer to home, um, expanding our cooperative efforts into uh, processing a little more closer to home would be something that we're focusing on now too. So not just getting to market products, but getting there smarter and more direct. Um, uh, again, it's hard for small farmers or small businesses to kind of do that. It's we're black sheep in our collective mentality. Um, you know, we hope that the facilities that we build for ourselves can be used by hundreds of different farms in our region. So that's the challenge now, finding the best way to value add these products and, and the best way to stabilize them, keep them shelf stable so that they can get to people around the world. And Rewild Organic is selling in, in Canada, a little bit in Europe, in the U.S. right now, Mexico. So we're growing. Yeah, fantastic to hear. So you've just got to keep up that development of the markets and the supply chain as quickly as that soil's regenerating and outputting more and more each year. So you've got a challenge on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the more farmers around us that like what we've been doing and are, are wanting to join now, um, and the other farmers that are, there's a lot of organic producers in Costa Rica that have had limited access to markets too, or they've just been selling raw like commodities and they're not doing very well. So there's a lot of there's a lot on the production side that could be done already and that could be geared up quickly. So we're looking for the right partners um, that want to, like I said, maybe 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 not just not just buy stuff from us, but like fulfill their own goals with their own sustainable development goals and stuff by latching in with companies like us that are doing this already. Yeah, building some kind of local 
processing and then having that collaborative and cooperative input from other producers, it just makes so much sense. It, it sort of ties things together. Well, it's already done in my region too. It's just with coffee or it's just with bananas. It's like very much only one or two commodities. So it's, it's, it's not, we're not reinventing any wheels here. We're just trying to make sure that there's more uh, options. If there's more options and more things, not just one or two commodities from our country, it'd be great. There used to, I think there, and there's thriving co-ops in our part of Costa Rica. There's 4,000 members in the Coe Putiscal. So I'm learning a lot from people that have been doing this for generations in Costa Rica already, just hoping that it can be a more diverse set of crops instead of just coffee. Yeah. So that, that local cooperative that's so huge, that's based on coffee. Yeah. Coffee or cattle now. And it's, it's, you know, some, some things that are very chemical intensive or very much creating monoculture and erosion issues. So, you know, getting matching the or pairing that cooperative mentality with some a little different uh, tactics and goals isn't, isn't rocket science either. So, just putting in the time. Yeah, just bringing those ideas together and seeing how they all mix up. It sounds fantastic. But and bring in markets that really will pay for it too. Like like finding markets that'll pay for it. A lot of people speak this and a lot of people want these things but a lot of producers still want to pay as if the employees don't matter or the future of the forest doesn't matter and i think i think that's changing slowly but surely but not everybody can afford to spend twice as much on things just because they want a better planet if i grew up in a household that couldn't couldn't afford to eat organic um that's another thing that black sheep's trying to do is grow regenerative organic goods that people can't afford but you know, that's that's the that's the that's a fantastic focus. Well, it is. I'm, my parents need to be able to afford it. Normal, right? Normal Americans and like not outside of San Francisco and New York can participate in regeneration too. It just, it, it just can't be $12 chocolate purse only. Like you're not going to get buy-in from small town America or whatever. No, it needs to sort of come down from being exclusive and being more for everybody. And that, I think that's a wonderful ambition. Such a wonderful ambition. Hey, if we had if we had collective uh, processing ability, like immediately, a lot of this, the those really high end chocolates would be available for less. It just it, it has to go to such centralized locations to be processed or whatever that there's really no money left on the table for the farmer. So uh, there's just there's some really specific places to invest in regenerative ag that will make a huge difference and will immediately make a bunch of small farmers competitive. Um, and it's not about uh, just like soil health and stuff. It's about processing equipment or about access to those kind of things in a fair and collaborative way. Um, I think we'll instantly be competitive in a bunch of markets. Yeah, so the across the whole supply chain is where you're sort of looking at how you can strip things back, essentially, so it's less hands involved. Yeah, well, yeah, and well, and that it, it's not so centralized again. I mean, if, if it's... And packaging, you know, packaging is an issue too. You come from from my world, and I'm like wanting to help the planet, and then the stuff I make, I have to somehow get into a package. And I, I, I it's like I don't want to ever see my rewild brand washing up on a beach somewhere. So I, I use organic ink and organic papers that are all dissolved, and they're all pretty dang expensive to like stand out, but and to be righteous and, or to be right, and all the way through the supply chain, I guess, um, it's very difficult, and you can't let that get profession get in the way of of good. But, you know, I, I, I have like, I never want to see my brand wash up on a beach somewhere uh, in some forever plastic. So that's, that's something that we're all going to have to figure out together. That's not something small farmers can, can figure out on their own. No, this is bringing in a whole array of different skill sets and industries, isn't it? And looking at how it can be scaled up, that, that it ticks the boxes without it becoming the bespoke top-end product it's actually more readily available yeah yeah i mean like if i yeah if i wanted to just have a product that only sold for you know 15 dollars a bite in the bay area or whatever could do that every little you know be banana paper around it and handmade banana paper and whatever and i love it but it's that's it's something that, I, that got in the way of me even getting into production for many years was not wanting to be in the packaging game because i was in recycling business um, for years I was so discouraged by how not real it all is <laughs> it's like how faux it all is how the idea of single use is per we, per we give ourselves permission because we think these things are recycled um but it kept me from even wanting to be an international goods game for years and but you know coffee and chocolate and some of the things they're only going to come from places like costa rica and um i you know we need to make sure those are done right and putting a lot of this right 
a lot of everything, a lot of the onus of uh, how we're going to fix climate change. Saying farmers in the front line can do it; they can store all the carbon in the soil. Um, you know, or we can do it better. We can figure out how not to not to have the same impacts as before. But like, I'm not. Farms don't have a bunch of money to do this experiment for us. <laughs> they're not. They're not going to be able to lead financially in this thing forward. So, I, we need we need to we need to think about this stuff pretty big and. Food, the food production part of food is one piece of it. And then most of the negative stuff comes after that. It's from logistic to packaging. So, yeah, I need more people that make plastic to be in permaculture and care more about regenerative. You know, maybe don't need more green thumbs right now showing up in Costa Rica. Need more experts that are going to make next, next generation packaging. Yeah. And the, the thing with such a big scope is it brings so many opportunities. There are... I think that wherever you are as a sort of focus in your career, there's a job for you in this in this air space. So, oh yeah, I think I just try. I think it could be tipped around. It's not a negative. It can feel overwhelming, but it's also very exciting because there's an opportunity no matter who you are. Oh, it is. Get yourself involved. Oh, I, I agree, and, I, and it, we don't we don't all need to be farmers. And I think you know, if one out of twenty people is actually growing food, we'd be in a whole different world on food production don't all need to grow our food, but you know, the, the way we do everything between where the food grow in the market or the consumer and uh, even the post consumer when it's going in the garbage or whatever, like we all need to participate in regenerative action. Yeah. Fantastic. And that is a very, very inspirational note to leave things on, but it's been, it's been wonderful to, to hear your whole story because everything about it feels, it always feels contagious. Like you're saying, this is, you know, it's quick, it's, it's abundant, it's, it's thriving on, on the ground. And then there's all these other opportunities to keep getting stuck into and keep moving forward with together. And I find that really exciting. So thank you so much for sharing. And do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, just, you know, the, the, <laughs> the last couple of years has been interesting, uh, the, with the pandemic and stuff and places like, Projects like ours, uh, we're still here. Um, we persevered through this. Um, and <clears throat> a lot of our problems when it comes to environmentalism or the environment, they seem so insurmountable. But And I, I was really a low when I moved down here on what I thought was possible when I moved to Costa Rica. Um, but unleashing the power of nature taught me so much. I'm a little bit possessed by the success of nature. The business approaches and stuff, they're all going to shift and change the way we think about doing that. It's going to shift in our lifetimes, hopefully a lot. Uh, but I believe in nature more than ever. Um, and there's some stuff worth protecting. There's so much stuff worth fixing. And it's it's fun. And we can also have fun doing this. As I've been doing this with my friends and family, we've had plenty of time to dance and enjoy and play music and, and reflect on why we do this. So, you know, I remember why I do it all the time, especially as things get better every day. It, it reminds me of why. So. And thank you for this chat too. This was fun. No, thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. New episodes are added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. It's a huge help to the show if you'd like to add a thumbs up or a review on whichever platform you're listening on. And let's keep figuring this all out together. Together.